Okay, well, thank you, first of all, to the Hertie School for having us. Thank you also to PodFest Berlin, which helped produce this event, and of course to Foreign Policy, uh, which helps produce this podcast every week. I think I can speak for both of us. We're very glad to be here. Personally, I'm happy to be here. I've never been at Hertie before. Uh, I've been living here for five years and uh, yeah, it's remarkable that I haven't been here. Also partly because my daughter goes to preschool, literally just down the block. Um, and so I'm here every day, uh, usually either dropping her off or picking her up. And I realized the sort of spectrum that this block uh, uh, um, encompasses in education from preschool to graduate studies in uh, public policy. Uh, and so, yeah, we're very happy to be here tonight. We thought we'd shake it up a little bit. Uh, normally we do two segments that cover two different topics. We thought we would try to cover a larger number of topics uh, tonight, fewer questions in each topic. All of them, though, will be sort of broadly Germany-related since we're uh, both here tonight. So to start off uh, a little bit on party politics right now, specifically parties on the far right and the far left the AfD is the uh, uh, Alternative für Deutschland, the far-right party in Germany. It's higher in the polls now than it ever has been before, Adam. Um, in a lot of ways, the AfD sort of challenges some basic ideas of German politics, of German identity, what it means, you know, what it means to be a German uh, and a German citizen these days. And you've written about the AfD recently in uh, the Financial Times. It was an interesting article. It seemed like you were arguing that um, this is a challenge that needs to be met with economic policy. And I thought I would take this opportunity just to push back a little or ask uh, more detail. Why is this kind of fundamental challenge? I mean, we're talking about deep fundamental political, philosophical challenge to Germany. Why is that something that should be responded to with economic policy? Oh yeah, it's a, it's a great question, and uh, but let me start by saying how pleased I am to be here too. It's really great to be back in Berlin. Yeah, I did this piece in the FT saying that the way in the, which the mainstream parties in Germany should respond to the challenge of the AFD breaking through the 20% boundary in the, in the polls and doing as well as it did in Bavaria and Hesse is through a concerted program of public investment. I mean, this is an old, the Alte Leia, it's an old story for me, obviously I've always believed in public investment and of course we should breach the Schuldenbremse too. So there's a kind of instrumentalization here you might say, but I am actually serious about the suggestion. Uh, but it requires a kind of logical step and you're quite right to pick up on this and to say, well hang on Adam, isn't the AFD essentially a political phenomenon? Why do you think that our response should be economic? And it's because of the, what I mean by the response. And I've been thinking about how best to kind of explain the logic of, of the argument. And it's something it's like the difference between thinking to yourself, damn, I would like to be married to that person. How do I get there? And should I ask that person to marry me? And those are directly related questions. Obviously, you can't likely get to one outcome without solving the other problem first. But they're distinct logical problems. And for me, the question of should we respond to the AFD with massive public spending on Kitas and education uh, and, and, and housing is the latter type of question. It's the, we, of course we want to achieve a certain outcome, which is to reduce their vote, but that implies a whole series of assumptions about who they are and why they're motivated and everything else. The question that we as centrist liberals have to solve is what is it right for us to do in this moment? 
Will they say yes or no? We can't tell. But the question is, do we want to regret not having done the obvious thing if what we wanted to do was end up married? Right? If you don't ever ask, you can't possibly get there. If you actually want to save democracy from this kind of threat, the very least you want to do as a liberal, a liberal centrist is to be able to look yourself in the mirror and say, well, we did the obvious thing. And the obvious thing is to address what are the fundamental material concerns triggered in quite reasonable people by the experience of mass migration. I don't want to get into their heads and understand why their experience of mass migration and those tensions caused them then to do something which I consider entirely unreasonable, which is to threaten to vote with a party which contains the 11 to 12% of Germans who actually have far-right views, and some of them are flat-out neo-Nazis. That's a choice I find reprehensible. But I don't want to address that, right? I don't want to figure out what makes them go one way or the other. I'm going to have a theory which seems reasonable to me, and I'm going to address those concerns in a way which seems reasonable for us in terms of our logic. And that's, that's the kind of claim. We should do it because afterwards, whatever happens, we can say we did the thing that democracy should do under these circumstances. Liberal Democrats, centrist Democrats should do. And in the German case, it's obvious. Germany is short of, depending on the survey you look at, somewhere between 700,000 and 2 million departments, depending on how you do the calculation. The government itself says it needs to get to 400,000 cons new constructions every year, of which at least 100,000 need to be social housing. It's it's currently less than 300,000. The order of magnitude the industry is asking for is a 50 billion fund. That seems like the right kind of thing to be doing. Likewise, on keto places, we know we're a couple of hundred thousand short, maybe a hundred odd. That's about 25% to 30% of the current offering. You need to recruit a bunch of new atseer of, 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 of educators to fill that gap. These are the sorts of things that we ought to be fixing in terms of the logic of our own thinking about democracy, we need to, the thesis has got to be not that we're going to sway the 12% of die-hard radical right-wingers and the 1% of actual neo-Nazis. What we've got to demonstrate to the other 15 to 20% who are currently vacillating on the offence is that we actually are demonstrably responding to the material questions which are there. And that, to me, is the basis for the move. It is, should we ask, if we want to get married, should we ask? That should be the answer. Yes, of course we should. What happens next, you don't really know, right? That's complicated. But what we need to be able to do is to be able to say, yeah, we did the obvious step. Okay, and implicit there is it might not work. Who knows? You might be absolutely right. Maybe this is irredeemable, but we should do the thing because otherwise we're giving ourselves up. Okay, well, now to, to shift to the other side of the political spectrum, big news here in Germany is that there is a new party uh, as of this week that's been created uh, by a popular political figure, Sarah Wagenknecht. She used to be the most prominent member of the leftist party, Die Linke. This is the party that's even further to the left than the Social Democrats. Um, she has sort of come up with her own political formula for her new party, which basically consists of being left on economics and conservative on social issues, including migration uh, and just other cultural issues in the country. Um, I'm curious about this combination. Is there reason to think that there's demand for this kind of combination in Germany and in Europe in general? I mean, what should we, what should we make of that? I mean, she is an extraordinary figure. I mean, that's the first thing to say, really, right? And to communicate, we're thinking about communicating, communicating to our American audience. It's like a, she's this amazing kind of hangover of a kind of quite true-believing late GDR-style Marxism. She joined the party in the summer of 89 in the hope of reforming it. She spent the week when the, when the, when the wall came down locked in her garret reading Hegel. 
refusing to kind of go out or maybe not even hearing about it. Like, I, I find it totally charming. Like, I can see why people are into it, but it's, <laughs> it's an unusual it's political Sounds position. like you. You were you locked know, in the yeah, library, no, you said, thanks, when the wall came down. Like, yeah, no. The, the, you know, within Die Linke, yeah. her views on Stalinism were considered to be a little bit on the apologetic end of the spectrum. Like, um, and, and yet, all the opinion polling shows that this is an entirely serious proposition. The opinion polling seems to show that she might flip anywhere up to about half of the AFD's electorate in certain key East German constituencies. Most people are suggesting that she could break the 5% boundary in the European elections coming up. I think the idea is that you go in on the European elections where it, the, the overhead in terms of party organization is relatively low, which is, you know, so she's picked a good moment. She's a very canny operator. I think the big question is whether she can actually build an adequate organization around this bid. The formula itself... I mean, I was thinking about it. In a sense, the formula itself is a little bit of a cliche at this point. Like, who isn't doing that kind of combination of various types of, you know, kind of reactionary cultural politics on the one hand with various types of social offering? I think the claim with Wagenknecht was always that there was some sort of big bargain that you could do here, that you could go really radical on the social policy side if you dressed it with common quote, I think her phrase is something like common sense on ecology, common sense on migration. In, and so that, I think, is the real test. Like anyone can do the kind of blue labor, the Tories were doing this in Britain, right? Various types of national welfareism on the one hand with a big dose of racism. Like that's a formula that will work for all sorts of people, um, you know, and skepticism on green issues and a bit of woke bashing, like which is basically what she's doing. Um, but I think the real issue is what is the what is the bang you get in terms of actual social policy radicalism for that that price that you pay, and that's where that's what will be interesting to see. I mean, she's talking about being a coalition partner for the CDU in major East German states, and if you do the arithmetic on this, she's not as crazy as that sounds, right? Because that is Germany's problem is finding viable coalition options, and the Greens can't really be a CDU partner, so they need somebody who's kind of well, maybe the Greens can be, but anyway, right now the arithmetic's not good, and she thinks she sees she sees a space there. Hmm. Yeah, no. I mean, as far as I know, the Tories have not gone on the Stalinist side of the ledger on the economic policy. Uh, but, but um, so to uh, shift topics now a little bit. Um, the there was a very big, uh, prominent cover story in the Economist that basically referred to Germany as the sick man of Europe. Uh, this was followed by similar uh, stories in Der Spiegel, Die Zeit, the big magazines here, uh, other magazines, all claiming that Germany now is kind of in a dire economic situation. Just curious whether you think this is all overblown or not. I mean, it, it struck me that Germany is still Europe's economic engine, right? I mean, I mean, the last time these the kind of sick man terminology came up was the late 90s, early 2000s, I guess. And I'm curious how yeah, how do the fundamentals of the German economy now compared with those bad times uh, 20, 25 years ago? It's really... Did they really do another... The Economist did another sick man of Europe? Yeah, I'm, yeah it was some, essentially along so those lines. So there's I mean, actually like, a cottage industry now of investment reports pointing out in like itemized lists why the current moment is different from the late 1990s. Like literally, it's like Berenberg Bank did one, Deutsche Bank did one. Like everyone is doing this point-for-point point comparison of the late 90s with the current moment, and it just doesn't wash. It doesn't stack up as a story at all. So if you think about the late 90s, you were talking about Germany post-unification with a fundamentally unsolved structural problem in the way in which they were handling the huge wave of unemployment, and they fed it into the social insurance system so as to keep it off the budget, which is what, you know, Cole's deal. 
And the consequence of that was then this really vicious circle where you had to keep raising essentially taxation on labor to finance unemployment, which rendered more people unemployable. And so you had this really vicious downward cycle out of which then the Red-Green Coalition did this kind of strike through the Gordian knot and do the hearts for, people call it reforms, the hearts for labor market shift, right? Which is the most radical of the neoliberal late 90s, early 2000s moves. Overnight, a total shift in the Bismarck and welfare state. We are so not anywhere near in that kind of position. I mean, the German labor market is overtight right now. Um, so I think we, what we really need to do is kind of stand back. And I think this, this sort of anxiety comes from two different sources, both of which are to a degree legitimate. The first is a business cycle concern. Germany has an export-orientated model, still to a degree, not quite as strong as it was a few years back, but it's still there. And so when the global economy is shaky, and above all, China is shaky, there are concerns about German manufacturing uh, capital goods exports, quite reasonably. And with an interest rate raising cycle, with investment, you would expect to be in recession. This is the sort of thing you wouldn't expect, you know, wouldn't go well for Germany. What's more striking, and this is where I think the sick man stuff comes in, is that right now the IMF's prediction over the 10-year time horizon, or maybe it's eight for Germany's growth, is the same as that as the UK. And I, I was actually trying to think of the, any moment in recent decades in which, and they're both basically predicted to be very, very That's slow. That's not a good thing. It's really not a good thing okay. to be, no, to yeah. be in the same ballpark as the UK post-Brexit. Not, not a good thing at all. So what's, what's sitting behind that, and this is where I think that... Um, you know, some, some, you know, Holger Schmieding's analysis of Bromberg like actually does have uh, relevance, which is that there was a, there's basically a gear shift going on, that Germany got this one-off, not quite generational, but 15 to 20 year growth boost through what some people the neoliberal wing tend to regard as the reforms of the early 2000s. They were also enormously helped by the pattern of Chinese and East Asian industrialization at that moment, which Germany was highly complementary to. And those benefits, which gave Germany a slight margin of more rapid growth over the rest of Europe, um, were bound to unwind in due course. Plus, as the rest of Europe recovers from the aftermath of the Eurozone crisis, again, Germany's relative advantage was bound to unwind. And so what we're really seeing is a kind of normalization of Germany's condition. And even if, as it were, some degree of deindustrialization happened, I was looking at it just the other day, there's like a four percentage point difference between the share of manufacturing employment in the overall workforce in Germany relative to France, for instance. And we know you can run a highly affluent, highly efficient modern economy with the French structural balance. This is not the end of the world. So I think what we are seeing is the end of a particular growth model symbolized very dramatically by the you know the ominous clouds gathering around the german auto industry some cyclical concerns but the idea that we're going to see german politicians were talking about wohlstandsverluste vermögen you know really a decline and, uh, and that decline is and that's just sort of economically illiterate in the sense that you wouldn't expect an economy like germany's to contract in a protracted way it would be very unusual not even italy has done that since the 2008 crisis right stagnation maybe you can definitely see that that might be a real threat but a kind of declinist story is a really is i think a kind of is a fantasy really and it, it it's it reflects deep anxieties about a german model not being able to reproduce itself it reflects the need actually to rethink where germany goes next but I, the, the, that whole discourse we were having last year with the energy crisis and both Lindner and Harbeck, I think, indulged in it. Like this idea that somehow the German population needed to ready themselves for a historic decline in their living standard. 
that's just bad politics because that you know we've got a lot of problems and that is not one that you would expect germany to suffer this doesn't mean there aren't distributional issues and if you look at the work of people like marcel fratcher that the dev is doing like it's clear that those changes of the early 2000s plunged several 10 million germans into a level of precarity they had not previously experienced that's absolutely for real but the average the median, neither of those numbers is going in a downward direction uh, anytime soon. Yeah, maybe it's reflective also of a German cultural predilection for anxiety or angst in general on, 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 on political or economic issues. I, I mean, I, I guess I do want to ask, though, it does seem like that German industries don't invest nearly as much at home as they could. These companies making a lot of money and they don't seem to invest it at home. That seems to be a kind of reflection of some law, lack of confidence in Germany. And I'm curious, is this just a matter of, you know, what Keynes, the economist, referred to as a lack of animal spirits? I mean, is, do German companies just need a pep talk about Germany to, to get them to invest? I mean, it's really good that you focused on private investment because the the investment story in Germany, the public and the private dimensions are routinely conflated and confused. And the story where Germany really does have an exceptionally poor investment record is on the public side. Its numbers, at even the gross level, are low in the OCD leagues. And because of the depreciation, actually we're seeing a wearing down of the public capital stock in Germany over a period of decades now. And that's truly an exceptional narrative. The US even, I can't ever quite believe it, but the US has higher public investment numbers as a share of GDP than Germany over the recent decades. So it's really... This are, these are, those are the kind of catastrophically bad area. When you look in the private realm, which is the overwhelming majority of investment, which is why we should be focusing on it, Germany is kind of at the bottom of the OECD league, but it isn't off the charts and it's not in the negative zone. And if you focus in on the things that maybe matter most, like capital equipment investment in manufacturing, that actually has been reasonably healthy over time. It's the broader zone, and especially construction, which brings us back to the housing story, where you see really substantial underinvestment also in the private sector. And when you start digging into like what drives this, you get a very nuanced view depending on what survey you use. Right? It's actually very difficult. It's a real puzzle for economists to explain investment because it's both a micro and macro phenomenon. How do you merge the two? What are the logics driving them? And, but if you look at the survey evidence, like the, the, um, the uh, EV, is it EV in Cologne, the business, the business research institute there um, has done some quite good sort of survey driven investigations into this. And they tend to focus on three variables, which is bureaucracy, predictably enough, um, um, tax levels, the FDPs, you know, stalking horse. This is what the FDP goes on about endlessly. And then um, this kind of weird combination of labor shortage and high labor costs. And that, that, that combination, those three things seem to be, if you ask people why they're not investing more. Um, in general, on the in private investment side, we're not talking about a tragedy in the German case. It's there, the productivity increases are also there. A lot of the transfer of resource, which really did happen, because the corporate sector in Germany had brilliant decades from the early 2000s onwards with a big shift in GDP from the wage share to the profit side. A lot of that drains out into, well, drain is quite not the right, the right word, is the so-called Verlängerte Werkbank, so the extended workbench story, where what Germany, West Germany, Western Germany, essentially, where is a lot of this manufacturing is, bolts Eastern Europe into the supply chains of the German manufacturing sector. And so what's happening there is the corporates are basically relocating capital and technology to 
it's kind of like a NAFTA story in North America, where you have, again, the auto industry in the US basically builds this Canada, Detroit, New South, Mexico chain, which is what generates the, the US manufacturing of vehicles now. Same is happening in the German case. And so the good jobs, the high paying jobs in Germany are in a sense being protected in international competition by the fact that they're augmented by lower paid jobs in Slovakia, Hungary, and so on. So the insiders in the, the IG Metall represents within the German industry, as it were, profit from this extension, but what it does is to shrink the available stock of high quality capital for German workers to work on, or people, let's forget German workers, workers in Germany to work on. Right, so it's a kind of reallocation in a, in a, on an EU scale that's very significant. Okay, so point is, Germany is not the sick man of Europe. No, uh, I think we can sort of conclude you know, that. Moderately no. flu. Okay, has a mild no. cold. Yeah, well, you know, maybe getting older. This is the other kind of story. Okay. Maybe just sort of settling into like a comfortable late middle age. Okay, there we go. That's a more hopeful narrative. It's harder to sell magazines with that headline. But um, uh, I want to shift to a different topic uh, or maybe a different aspect of national identity in Germany, uh, and this bears on the war right now happening in the Middle East. Obviously, uh, the war has obliged every government in the world to respond somehow, um, and that's been obvious, uh, and Germany obviously has been included among them. And, you know, obviously as a, a, an American living in Germany, I've sort of been observing the response a bit as an outsider. and found it remarkable that there was this uh, sentence that the Chancellor Olaf Scholz used that um, essentially, a, it's not a direct quote, but uh, that, that protecting Israel is part of Germany's Staatsraison. Um, and this is a term that uh, I found difficult to translate into English. I was sort of trying, if I was trying to explain that to, to someone and and, uh, you know, I guess you could maybe describe it as national interest, but that didn't seem to capture it. And uh, I was curious, yeah, how would you translate this, this German concept? I mean, it seems to me that interests seem to be kind of more contestable than, than, than Staatsräson would suggest. Yeah, almost like it's a quasi-constitutional precept. So I'm curious, how would you explain Staatsräson to, to an outsider? Yeah, it's truly puzzling. Um, there was a really good there was a really good op-ed by the by the publisher of the FATS, uh, Frankfurter Allgemeine, um, the kind of Germany's newspaper of record, spelling out his bewilderment as well. Because the term, I mean, the obvious translation of Staatsraison is not into English but into French, right? Because it's actually raison d'état, and um, it's a terminology that comes as the as you know as the fact that we use French to express it shows us out really of the of the 17th century. It comes out of the early, late, early modern period and, and the early modernity. And it comes out of a period before the nation was defined as the center of state's policy. It comes out of a logic of absolutist power, really. It's the logic of Machiavelli or Frederick the Great writing about his actions in French about Prussia. Um, and it's, it's, it's profoundly puzzling because it's not part of the German constitutional Tradition. So if you look at the Grundgesetz, one of the really striking things about it is that it is a constitution that is founding a state, sort of, ish, kind of, in 1949, that focuses above all not on the state as an autonomous in interest with a thing which has an interest, but on the citizen and, and their dignity and their rights. It's very deliberate choice on the part of the constitutional jurisprudence of the period to step back from the state because the autonomy of the state and the demand that it had a logic by itself, 
was was considered really inimical and dangerous to liberalism and democracy in Germany. And the idea, furthermore, that you would tie this, because the point, the, the claim is, Israel's security is integrally tied to German Staatsraison. Again, security, per se, is not placed at the heart of the German constitutional jurisprudence. When you think about the way in which the use of force by the German state is governed and ruled, and it's very tightly constrained, this is not France we're talking about, or Britain, where you have James Bond and somebody at a building in London says, right, we're going to do this or that, right? The, the rules that constrain the use of force by the new German state founded after 49 is law, not reason. It's not some fanumph that we just sort of looked at the world and said, chime to do this. So it's this, and I would completely agree, however, that solidarity with Israel, anti-antisemitism, is in some sense a foundational value, but it is not something that you would express through the logic of Staatsraison. So where does this conflation come from? You, you would say it's actually part of Germany's core values, right? And it, apparently it goes back to Frau Merkel, who was, who was in, when she gave, she had the honor of giving a speech in German, to the Knesset in 2008 at a time when there had also been a complication in Gaza and she went to speak I think the fighting in Gaza started in February she went to speak in March April and she was the first German chancellor to use this phrase my, my view is basically the, the Schultz people were panicking they needed for him to say something that expressed what is clearly felt by the majority of people and certainly the political class of the federal republic which is complete commitment to Israel and um, this was the formula that was already there. Um, what it clearly doesn't mean is that Germany is going to deploy any military force in support of Israel. I mean, it'd be absurd, right? Because so as I understand it, the military equipment that's under discussion are drones which were leased from the Israelis. So it's a question of giving them back. Israel does far more to protect Germany than the other way around. Germany actually is buying Iron Dome interceptors for its own air raid. So, and. Israel, this is the irony of the whole situation. Israel doesn't need the $14 billion from the Americans either. Israel has a sovereign wealth fund worth three to $400 billion. It's a half trillion dollar economy. These are, these are displays of symbolic solidarity on the part of states, the US and Germany, where everything about their politics says support Israel in most gratuitously, right? Both symbolically and materially. That's, that's the political logic of the situation. And in, the, in both cases, I think it is tied to something about profound values. And in both cases, I think the link to reason of state is very, very tenuous. That isn't the basis on which either of them, I think, would strongly make this case at this point. It's really something more about values. Well, okay, then to maybe focus then on what the distinction is between values and Staatsraison a little bit here. I mean, is Staatsraison something that can naturally change over time or uh you know it, you know is it is it the product of discursive processes in in the society i mean is it conceivable that over time values would change naturally or could 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 these could the Staatsraison itself change over time is that conceivable or is that the the logic of Staatsraison precisely is that it does not doesn't uh, change. I mean, I think there's a school of thought that would say if Germany got Staatsraison, that by itself would be a value change of quite epic proportions. I mean, there is a cottage industry saying Germany doesn't have a strategic culture, it doesn't know how to do this. I think that's not fair, because I think Ostpolitik was actually Staatsraison. It involved some very serious compromises of values, for instance. 
um, over human rights. You were doing deals with, you know, when Brandt does his Kniefall in Poland, it's literally days after the communist regime there has suppressed the workers' uprising with loss of life. So there has always actually been a Staatsraison, but for Germany to openly acknowledge would mean they've, they've turned even more French than they previously have been. The analogue is in industrial policy. Um, but that Germany's the founding values and organizing values of this society are changing over time. Both of us can bear personal testimony to this. I mean, I moved to Germany in 74, and uh, I was the first cohort of kids that were uh, introduced to German schools. Um, and Germany now is a society in which a third of kids below, below the age of 14 are, um, are have what are called, you know, migrantische Hintergründe. So they either are themselves first generation or one of their parents is. And this transforms the nature of this society in a really subtle, very complicated way that's very ongoing. And we saw in the Zonnale how contested this is. And it will pose questions of where Germany's natural solidarities and alignments lie. But I think of Germany as fascinating precisely because it is a society which, which, where you can palpably see the transformation of identity. I mean, on the one hand, that, the diversification. On the other hand, something I never expected to see, it's an effect of unification, which is that growing up as a liberal in Heidelberg in the 70s, we politely referred to the state that we lived in as the Bundesrepublik, because there was also the GDR. And that was the whole point of Ostpolitik, was to recognize and accept this difference. And if you didn't, if you spoke of Deutschland, you clearly belonged to the old Hausstein doctrine, the old school CDU. And now my friends of a similar age just have to take me aside and say, no, Adam, it's Deutschland now. Like, I know you still want to call it the Bundesrepublik, but like at least since the, you know, the summer of miracles and Merkel's VM, like, you know, we're, we're all Deutschland, we're all Deutschland. Now, was it Merkel's? Anyway, the beautiful summer of football. There was this, there's this sense in which that, that Hemschweller, that boundary has dropped. So in lots of different directions, I think there is a, there is a change in the underlying self-understanding which is very dynamic and very fascinating. It's not by any means confined to Germany, but having had a British background that was shaped by a post-colonial migratory experience more deeply at an earlier stage, it's been fascinating to watch Germany not catch up as a teleological assumption, but also to begin changing in such a dramatic and fundamental way. So that the German interior ministry literally now defines Germany as an Einwanderungsland. If you, if you, if you search, if you Google search, Einwanderungsland, Deutschland, the first thing that comes up is the Bundesministerium des Innern, which literally says Deutschland is ein Einwanderungsland mit einem Ausländeranteil von, mit einem Anteil von migrantischen Biografien, something like that, which is not something you would have seen 20 years ago. I should say I recently took a test to become a German citizen myself. I mean, uh, the question did not come up before. Did you pass? Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. I'm, uh, I, got, I, I got one question wrong, which means I did pass. The question I got wrong, maybe you'll see if you know the Don't. answer. <laughs> it's, there's no, I mean, there's, I, 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 there's, it's really a random question. It was uh, basically what uh, language, uh, uh, what language could you take uh, the German driver's license exam in? And whether you needed to take it in German or did you uh, could you take it in other languages? And I had no idea. I, guess, <laughs> would I, I knew it totally. What was the what is the, <laughs> the, answer? the answer? Is you could take it in a variety of European languages. It turns oh, out. Oh, EU languages. Are they yes, EU, can EU you take languages. It in Turkish. Uh, that I I didn't do not recall. But the uh, the point is, uh, uh, the, uh, there were no questions on 
what the name of Germany was, whether it was the Bundesrepublik or Germany. Uh, I'm not sure I would have gotten that right. I might have said Deutschland um, or, or might have said Bundesrepublik. Who knows? Um, but um, anyway, I'm waiting for Einwanderungsgesetz reform to happen. Basically, until and, or, or the Staatsbürgerschaftsrecht. There's there's a there's a reform that's supposed to happen that would allow me to have double uh, citizenship. But uh, right now, it's it's uh, uh, it's it's still not passed. So until then. Uh, it's in limbo, is the point. But uh, anyway, yeah, that's my life plan: is actually to give up my other citizenship and acquire German. So the moment when I get to give up, you my would British gladly give it up. German okay, a happy day. So. That's um, yeah, not quite at that point with the U.S. citizenship. But um, but uh, to move on to another uh, topic, uh, we obviously are in Berlin. Uh, tourists come to Berlin, the first thing they think of is the Berlin Wall, and that got me thinking about other walls in the world. Uh, obviously, Donald Trump uh, famously promised a wall on the Mexican boundary. There's been a lot of talk recently, obviously, in the Middle East as well, about the wall between Israel and Gaza. Yeah, so I wanted to ask some questions about uh, the economics of walls. <laughs> and so, like, on the most basic level, the function of, all, of a wall, in all of those cases, I guess, seems to be to control the movement of populations of human of human beings moving across across the boundary that it marks but does the purpose of walls extend beyond that i mean you know in some ways it's an invitation to kind of indulge in some cultural semiotics here i mean is 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 like a, the wall an act of passive aggression in some ways a, a kind of turning away a gesture of kind, kind of control somehow in more general sense yeah an extremely violent version of that obviously as, as people from this city know only too well and as the Middle East also demonstrates. And um, I mean, what's fascinating is the reactions it produces, right? Because I think you could accept the wall, which again, reflecting on the 70s is essentially what folks in West Germany were doing. And that was part of the Staatsraison of the Brandschmidt period was that you accept the wall and then you work around it. But you accept it first and foremost, which did involve a degree of turning away from people who we now would naturally consider German. In fact, somebody like um, Tony Jutt would argue it involved a kind of Western turning away from all of Eastern Europe. And I think you could think of the Ukraine crisis as the kind of final moment where the West embraced deep Eastern Europe as part of Europe. That is the, those, that's what we're contending over, is the kind of long legacy of the effects of the Iron Curtain being drawn. But the other, the other reaction that you see is the kind of insistent and I at some level think heroic uh, demonstration of the human desire to cross over whatever bloody obstacle is put in front of us. And you could think of the migrant treks, the refugee treks from Central America, which are butting up against the American boundary right now as a demonstration of that. People's just bloody determination to get themselves and their families out of the miserable circumstances in so many Central American states in the current moment. Or doing research for the pod, actually, this story that I came across, which I just didn't understand, which is about Gaza and the immediate aftermath of Hamas's takeover in 2007, when Israel immediately imposed a massive blockade, cutting off the Gazan economy from Israel, on which it had previously been dependent and had flourished, in a sense, as far as Gaza's economy has ever flourished. It was, as you would imagine, by bolting itself on as a labor annex to Israel. And when those channels were shut down progressively starting with the first intifada the resourceful palestinians in gaza responded by doing something which i think is unique which is building a tunnel economy so commercially driven tunnel digging across the boundary between 
Gaza and Egypt because the Egyptian authorities were collaborating in the shutdown of the boundary because the Egyptian authorities have no love for the radical Islamic politics of Gaza any more than anyone else does. And from 2007 onwards, this became extraordinarily extensive. So by 2010-11, when the Muslim Brotherhood took charge in, in 12 in Egypt and opened the boundary, we think up to 1,500 tunnels had been dug underneath the boundary between Gaza and Egypt. And Hamas's survival, uh, in terms of its kind of fiscal revenue, crucially depended essentially on organizing these. And these were coalitions of Palestinian business people essentially coming together to mobilize about $150,000, which is apparently what it cost to dig one of these tunnels, one of the basic tunnels. And then Hamas licensed and operated this tunnel system, taxed it, and it's just the kind of classic state building process where guys with guns establish a monopoly of control over a resource generating mechanism. And the perverse, ultimate perversity of this is that every time Israel bombed Gaza, and contained the flow of goods across the boundary, the Palestinians have to reconstruct but can't get the construction materials they need and guess how they get into Gaza through the tunnel system that Hamas controls. And so between 2007, uh, 8, when this started, and the shutdown which comes with Sisi's takeover in Egypt and the reimposition of military control on the Egyptian side, and then is it Iron Lead, the, whichever, the 2014 Israeli incursion, which, which put a p stop to this process. There was this seven-year unique experiment, I think, in economic history of a survival economy running on a tunnel system dug underneath, done under, dug underneath the wall. I mean, it's really, I think especially if you're coming from Berlin, it's really a haunting image of the kind of resilience of people who are going to find ways and the way in which power intrudes and all of these incredibly perverse, in, perverse effects are res the result because this is what gave Hamas the fiscal base to sustain itself um, because they literally controlled access to construction materials. And if you know the history of the GDR, for instance, you know, that's one of the, if you were here in 89, 90, the huge queues of people were outside the supermarkets, outside the sex shops, and outside Bauhaus, outside the construction because there was no DIY equipment and Hamas basically controlled the flow of DIY equipment into, into Gaza. So it's, and that is an effect of this kind of siege economy. I guess from the perspective of those putting up these walls, I mean, what are the overall costs that should be considered? I mean, beyond the cost of just putting them up in the first place. I mean, is it the costs of policing them that are kind of most relevant here? Or is it more the second order economic effects of, you know, estranging foreigners and uh, and yeah, worsening foreign ties, et cetera. It's really, this is where I'm just gonna keep harping on this because it's an interesting theme and then I'll, I'll shift off terrain that is, to terrain that's somewhat less painful to talk about. But economics really just keeps binding here. Because if you're Israel and you're going to quarantine Gaza, you've got a problem. The cost to you of building the wall is not just maintaining it and then adequately equipping it with soldiers to guard, which they obviously found difficult in the long run. Um, but actually the loss of the labor supply. Because if you are relying on a flow of migrant Palestinian labor, which they were in the 80s, with the first intifada, when you impose that first blockade, your question is, where does your work come from? And the first intifada was actually in large part a strike 
by migrant Palestinian workers who simply refused to go and work on Israeli construction sites and in Israeli retail and in Israeli restaurants. So the first form of the Intifada was in fact a collective sit-down strike on the part of the Palestinians. The Intifada started when there's an Israeli truck running into a bus that was ferrying Palestinian workers and killing four people. And so it was tied up, it's a bit, you know, tied up with a kind of migrant economy. How did Israel respond? It responded by diversifying its sources of migrant labor. So if Tel Aviv now, for instance, is a very cosmopolitan city, that doesn't really make much sense. You know, you don't, like, the Texas, New Mexico towns on the border to Mexico are not very cosmopolitan places because all of the migrant labor is provided by Mexicans coming across and Central Americans coming across the border. If Israel is actually quite globally cosmopolitan in terms of its migrant labor force, it's part of an effort to render Gaza disposable, displaceable, and essentially irrelevant which is what then enables you to do what Israel is doing right now. If it actually had any powerful economic connections to anywhere, if it mattered to the Israelis in any way, what happened to these people, they wouldn't be able to do what they're doing. And so this is a sign of this surgical excision of the Gazan economy out of the Middle East and experts. This is a town that used to be an incredibly important commercial node. The other people I think about who are figuring out the costs of putting up walls are the Chinese. Because in, in a sense, the most important world in the world, wall in the world is invisible. And it's the Great Firewall that separates 1.4 billion people, hugely tech active, massively digitally active, totally on their phones all the time, from the rest of humanity who also on their phones all the time, and yet now live in two completely separate existences. And you do get, you get jumping, not tunneling, but jumping, virtual world. So about 100 plus million Chinese are reckoned to use VPNs on any given day. So roughly 10% of the population are jumping across. Um, it's not terribly risky to do it. You don't really suffer any major penalties, but they, they play a cat and mouse game. They go, go after all the fashionable VPNs. They try and shut them down. You load up a new one. So there's How a, many was that? Was 10 million? 100 million. 100, 100 to 130 million. So almost 10% of the population. A little bit like in East Germany, there was the habit of watching West German television at nighttime. So there's about 10% of the Chinese population who are on Twitter. I <laughs> Imagine. Like, because the, the reverse effect, and this is more a positive one, is that you put up a wall and it's the most dramatic act of protectionism you could possibly imagine. So what the Chinese have done by putting the firewall up is not only establish all the obvious stuff, like security control, news flow, all of that, but they've also created this basically fishbowl for domestic, national, technological innovation. And so the huge advances they have made, and in some ways their tech ecosystem is much more consumer friendly than ours. Their platforms are much, much where they integrate content and commercialization much more aggressively than ours do. You know, the sort of thing that Elon Musk is trying to do is completely normal on Weibo, right? The, the, it's a payment platform as well as a content providing platform. That's an effect of the closure of 1.4 billion you know, rapidly advancing consumers, essentially behind a massive wall of politically motivated tech protectionism. And if you are the size of China, with the kind of innovation ecosystem they have and the humble capital pipeline they've got, this is more like a story of 19th century American protectionism than it is of, you know, an Albania or a Soviet Union. Because you protect, you subsidize, and you actually just have a giant industrial policy engine, which because inside China, it's hyper-competitive. I mean, like, unbelievably fast-moving competition between the Chinese players. You don't suffer much disadvantage by not going up against Facebook, believe you. I mean, like, seriously, they're dopey by comparison. So it's actually produced this hyperactive 
network. And then the really the final thing is it then begins to act as an enforcer. So the really the thing we underestimate in the West about the Chinese media sphere is it's self-enclosing. If you want to, you can get out. But 90% of Chinese don't want to get out. They stay in their system, right? And they stay in their system because it feeds their appetites, not ours. And we don't know really how to feed their appetites. And their system generates content in the same way as ours does. Ours does through eyeballs, through clicks, the whole logic. And what's really astonishing about it is the foreign policy effect of this. So the single thing which generates most hits, most views, most clicks in the, so the Chinese social media thing is aggressive, misogynistic, nationalistic assaults on Western liberals. That is the single best way to generate advertising revenue. And so now you've got a complete loop, right? You shut the liberals out, you build this tech ecosystem, and then you unleash this combination of technology, populism, and the commercial thing. And it's, it's an absolute force to be reckoned with for the regime itself too, because they now have to control this tiger. Like it's, it's very difficult, I think, to conduct raison d'etat when you have literally 50% plus of the population baying for an outright military invasion of Taiwan. If you poll the Chinese, all of the studies that have been done, NYU Shanghai has done some good polling, there is actual support for a full-on military attack. Yeah, it's interesting to think of that nationalism or the, the sort of the, the, the cause and effect here. That in other words, one doesn't cut oneself off because one is already nationalist necessarily, but by being cut off, an environment becomes nationalistic. Uh, but yeah, obviously, since we are here at the Hattie School, a, a university here in the middle of Berlin, I thought I would ask a couple of questions about higher education here in Germany and Europe in general. Um, uh, Germany... Germany um, famously uh, had this policy several years ago that it initiated, still continues to this day, called the Excellence Initiative. This was a sort of an effort to um, kind of make the higher education system, which is primarily public here in Germany, like elsewhere in Europe, to, to make it more competitive by creating some competition between the various universities and to make more money available to those that come out on top. Curious what you make of this Excellence Initiative. Is this something that actually seems to be... Uh, yeah, potentially saving the, the German uh, higher education system? Uh, it's obviously, we've done Gaza, now we're gonna talk about, now we're gonna talk about German higher education in a, in a German university. Um, it's really a fascinating initiative and it, what's also interesting about it is I think what the precipitating factors were in part the kind of global ranking exercises of the early 2000s, which came out of the market oriented neoliberal kind of vision of higher education that was prevalent in places like the UK. It was the Times Higher Education Supplement and then it was Shanghai that started issuing these rankings. And the Germans found themselves in these humiliating low positions in the global league tables. And it triggered a kind of, you know, uh, this may be wrong, Cornelia may be able to fill us in on the precise logic here, but that's kind of how I remember it anyway. By that point, I was in the UK and watching this from the outside. And, um, you know, it's the single biggest, I think the most heavily funded initiative that the Germans have launched in this space, 500 million euros, like, you know, as a project. We, I think the group of universities included in the last round extended to 11. They started out, I think the original idea was just one. And then they said, no, that we can't do that. We'll do three. And then they've extended it consecutively now to, to, to 11. And it's a little bit, as the Germans would say, Gießkanner. It's a little bit watering can. Like this, so 500 million spread across 11 is already seven, it's sort of like 50 million per, you know, and, and you're funding entire institutions most of the time, I, as far as I understand it, which also means that you're spreading this across, across uh, big, big units. I mean, it's unlikely that that kind of money could possibly generate 
a major shift in a system which is dominated by ultra-elitist French, British, Swiss, Swiss kind of institutions, maybe the Swiss are a little less elitist, massively moneyed up and levered up uh, American institutions with, with endowments which are multiples of, you know, each in the university multiples of the one that you and I c connects us, Yale has maybe an endowment, uh, uh, yes, a <laughs> uh, hundred times larger, a hundred times larger than that fund. And th that's flow and stock, but nevertheless, you get the general idea. And then hyper-competitive um, Asian universities where entire cohorts of young kids are pressed towards ultra-competitive entrance exams and then into a system that is, you know, that's driven and incentivized in a way that Western universities aren't to produce, to produce outcomes. And that, you know, to my mind, the story of the German model is that if you wanted to actually compete at a higher level, you'd have to do much more, much, much more. Um, funding per student the OE on the OECD's figures is $20,000 per year per student in Germany, all of it public, essentially, and thirty-six dollars to $37,000 a year in the US, of which roughly two-thirds is private. So that gives you an idea of the gap just on the per student basis. We would need a doubling of the overall funding level to put Germany at the same level as the US. And then you would need to make good the deficits. But I think the question you have to ask is, do you want to do this? And this goes back to this question about Germany's sick man of Europe. I mean, if you place Germany on a league table devised by crazy Brits and, you know, obsessed Chinese and say, well, well, how does the German system compare on those? It's not going to look good because it's not designed to do what either of their systems are doing. Um, if you look at German society, if you look at German social structure, if you look at the mental health of German teenagers, I mean, German teenagers must be the single most relaxed group of teenagers in the world. Like genuinely, it's a natural experiment. If you remove any academic pressure, does bulimia, does suicidal impulse, does it all go down? Are they just happier and better off? Because it's a world apart. If you read like parenting columns in the New York Times, they, 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 they're so insane what they're describing about uh, growing up in the United States. And they don't yeah. seem to apply to... And there's a horseshoe effect where like, you know, modern Chinese can completely relate to the lifestyles of upper class Americans. They're in the same kind of rat race. The less highly performing Chinese go to the best American schools. The very highest performing Chinese stay in the Chinese system, obviously. Why would you go anywhere else? But they're very rich, very affluent, very well-connected Chinese who want opt out of theirs, opt into our system, and then face this crazy multi-dimensional American rat race around all sorts of bizarre criteria uh, in which they are systematically disadvantaged against. There's a bamboo ceiling. The Supreme Court has ruled on this issue. It's quite clear that there is systematic discrimination against Asian students, and nevertheless, they come. So it's a... It really is a, a world of higher education, of high school, really. It starts in high school. In fact, it starts in preschool very intensively in a city like New York. That Germans are, as a collectivity, essentially ex have chosen to opt out of. And I don't know whether that's a bad choice. I mean, I know, as a, you know, I would have a German passport if I'd taken a job offer in Munich in 2006. But at the time of the excellence initiative, and I kind of don't know whether I don't regret that choice. Um, but it is a, it's a totally different choice of, of paths and social, social organization, assumptions about you know, what, what success consists in. And it's very deep. I mean, anyone, this is an international organized you know, group of students. Many of you will have experience with systems outside. You're coming in at the postgraduate level at Hertie. 
but if you were in the the standard German undergraduate system, you would be in many cases alongside folks who had just a radically different high school experience from anyone in the rest of the world. This gets back to the section we talked about walls, though. I mean, is it possible to maintain this different idea of success absent some other is, like, is further Germany, protection? Is a Germany attracting migrants? Do people want to live here? Do people want to raise families here? Of course they do. The real problem is there's not enough housing and there's not enough, you know, there's not enough Kita places. If Germany wanted to invest in that, it could make, I don't know, the happiest group of migrants in the world. I, yeah, yeah. I mean, on the other hand, there's always this, there's talk about the lack of uh, skilled labor and, 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 and that, that, that skilled labor make tends to... Make people feel welcome, build the accommodation, make space for their kids, spend money on, the, on, the, on human capital. So, I mean, I guess finally then to ask... What about a place like Haiti? Then, obviously, we've been talking about public institutions. Haiti is a uh, is a private uh, university, and so can can places like Haiti fill the gap uh, that we're sort of describing here in Germany? I mean, or are they sort of will they always inevitably be a kind of uncomfortable fit in this German system you're describing? Um, yeah, just sort of not having this this ecosystem. No, I mean, what strikes me about the Hertie experiment is that it seems to me it makes this this should, this version of the private university makes sense to me. There are other models of private university in Germany which I don't quite get. The undergraduate school model, I don't quite get how that works. I don't understand. But the graduate-focused gov school of government model and the freestanding school of government in a city like Berlin, which doesn't really have a school of government otherwise, it's kind of a no-brainer at some level. The real question is why no one else has done it before. And how long it'll take before somebody wakes up, smells the coffee, and gives you a nice big endowment to the tune of like 500 million or something, maybe slightly more than that. Like that's, that's, kind of what, that's kind of what this sort of place needs. And then you can be like the schools of government that other significant capitals you know, typically have. Like, and it, wouldn't, it, would, it, would be, it would make perfect sense to do that. Um, right now, as a model, I was looking up the fees. Like it's a great offer. It's like it's a, it's a very attractive, competitive bid. Like, no, seriously, I'm interested in this stuff. I know how much it costs at Columbia. Like, I'm always telling my students, look at European options. And I, wasn't, I hadn't actually just looked at prices. And it's, it's thoroughly competitive. It's a, it's a marketplace at that level. And um, no, I don't see any reason. But is it going to fill? No, this isn't going to transform or revolutionize the German and heavens, for heaven's sake, don't try to. <laughs> oh, stay well clear. Um, it's driven by its own very powerful societal logic. I mean, I was looking at the numbers. Like, there's 200,000 people working in the oppressed, you know, boiler room of the Mittelbau of German universities on precarious short-term contracts. 200,000 people. I mean, this is a labor relations problem. We're not, we're not talking about just university reform. We're talking about a significant slice of German society, which is in one of the most precarious labor regimes. In fact, they have a special law allowing these contracts to be more precarious than practically any other contracts in the German labor market. It's kind of, I'd always just naturalized it as, well, German academic hierarchy. But it's actually literally carved out of German labor law that you can treat people as badly as this. Like, and these are some of your best and brightest and most highly motivated, right? So I've always kind of watched from the outside. My colleagues work their way through this, my cohort. I have quite serious sort of survivor guilt about it because I clearly like stepped out of that. Um, but no, I don't think Hertie should think of itself in any way as trying to fix that problem. It should just simply be doing something that makes perfect sense, which is a school of government in Europe's most important capital. Like, duh, it's like it's not hard to make that argument, but what it clearly needs is a stable funding platform. It's got nice new accommodation, lovely new venue you're moving to, perfect location. You're gonna have a hard time distancing yourself from Staatsräson in those particular, in those particular digs. 
Um, but Germany needs Staatsräson, needs a school of government. It's the most important capital in Europe. Of course, it needs the yeah. There you go. There I you felt go. I felt like there was I could I could feel people holding their breath yeah. for a little while. <laughs> And there was a palpable sigh of relief. In fact, I saw Cornelia well, cheer. Well, also, okay, I'm a historian here. You know, and, and, and kudos to the students for raising the issue of the Hurty name. Right? Kudos to the students for doing that. I, I tweeted it out or whatever it was when the student initiative started. Like, this is belasted, right? It's for belasted, and it's, it's typical of the intelligence. Well, you might want to explain, so I think, for our Americans. So, well. like, the Hurty family were involved in Aryanization. Like, you know, and that's where big retail fortunes were made. The Jewish minority in Germany... The successful part of it was very heavily involved in retail. It's not by itself surprising that this was the case, but these skeletons, all of them, need to be brought out of the closet, right? This, again, I'm not sure it's Staatsraison. It shouldn't be Staatsraison. It should be a matter of fundamental democratic conviction. It certainly was what inspired me to be, in my first phase of my career, as Cornelia was saying, a historian of the Third Reich. I didn't do that as some sort of exoticizing Brit. Well, maybe a little bit, but like mainly because I grew up in West Germany in Vergangenheitsbewältigung. It's the task of a generation or two to do that work. And so really, I applaud the students of Herti for, for taking the risk, because it's a risk. Like when you've got a family that's backing this and their foundation to say, look, we really, really need to deal with this past. Like that is, that is the right thing to be doing. But that, again, is a kind of model. And that's something that I think that a school like this should embrace. After all, the big American schools, Cambridge, Oxford, are all having to do this with the history of slavery, with the history of, of colonialism. Think about the, the whole furore around the Rhodes endowment in the case of Oxford. Like, this is a legacy and a history that everyone in, everywhere really, it's not just the West, but certainly in the West it's layered very deep, that we all have to come to terms with and work on. And uh, again, I think Hertie is, thanks to the initiative of its students, like actually really uh, exemplary in that respect as well. So despite the move and the terrain you're moving to and the kind of grandeur of it and the Brandenburg Gate right there, like, um, no, I think this is a, is a, is a you know, promising vision of, uh, maybe, it, maybe out of here, maybe you do generate raison d'etat for, for the Berlin Republic. Well, uh, that was fun. We do need to end here for now. I want to thank everyone again at the Hertie School Cornelia Vol for having us, Podfest Berlin for helping organize, and of course foreign policy, and Adam Tooze again, my co-host uh, for 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 being here. Uh, we're gonna still be here for a little bit, and then uh, yeah, uh, you know you you can find us afterwards. But uh, but yeah, thank you all for coming. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, we yeah. really appreciate it. It's lovely to see so many people. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts.